0: Are now listening to Vibe Selection with Kyra, where you can get the real on today's hot topics. Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. As you already know, I am your host, Kyra, and on today's episode, I have a very special guest joining me today. I have author. Dana S. Diaz joining me today, who is the author of the best-selling book titled Gasping for Air, The String Hold of a Narcissistic Abuse, that chronicles her 25-year-long abusive relationship with her ex-husband and throughout her childhood. And on today's episode with Dana, we're going to discuss her past with narcissistic abusers and how others can overcome their own personal experiences with this issue. Ms. Dana, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for asking. So as you chronicled in your book, um, you discussed that, you know, you were abused dating back to your childhood, mostly by your stepfather and some issues, some abuse stemming from your actual biological mother. So can you describe to me what are some of the effects of the abuse that you endured growing up as a young child?
1: Well, you know, I it kind of started before I was even born. I mean, I I was a teenage pregnancy that my mother didn't want me. As a matter of fact, right after I was born, she had her tubes tied. And back then, even as a teenager, I guess you could get your tubes tied uh, after having your first child. Yeah, that it was this was a woman who did not seem to want children for sure. So. She ended up getting married um, to a man that she was dating since I was a year old. And, you know, it just kind of crept in little by little. I'd never liked him. And, and, you know, nobody really pays too much attention to how a kid reacts to an adult. Mm -hmm. But I just could never put my finger on it. He brought me stuffed animals. He smiled and all that. But it just... There was just something that rubbed me really wrong about him. And unfortunately, after we moved in with him and and then they got married, it just started getting worse and worse. It started with verbal abuse. My mother had to work a lot, so she left before I had to go to school. So he was in charge of preparing me for school. And, you know, at first it was little things like yanking my hair too hard when he was putting the pigtails in. And, you know, I. I get that that's, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily do that to my kid. And some people wouldn't call that abuse. And, and it probably wasn't, but it wasn't done, um, for any reason other than to hurt me. So that's kind of where I draw the line with abuse is If, if it's intentional and it's harming somebody, it's abusive in my book. So right. it was little stuff like that. But then he started, um, the verbal was just awful i mean i was a little little girl i want like listeners to literally think about a five or six or seven year old little girl that they know this man was telling me every day that my mother didn't love me that I was a burden he shouldn't have to pay for another man's child that I should have <laughs> never been born all these awful things and I was hearing this literally every single day and then the physical stuff just got worse with that time it would be like I could see him getting angry so I tried to run away or whatever and he'd grab my arm, but he'd grip it like he'd squeeze it really tightly to where it would leave hand marks or bruises. Um, Then it started getting a little worse. Like, excuse me, on one occasion, I grabbed the phone to call my mother to tell him, you know, tell her what he was saying or doing to me. And he grabbed the phone and just started beating my head with it. And, you know, fast forward to my teens when I was, I think I was 17 you know, there was an incident where I just was so I, I mean, you get to the point where you wonder why you're even alive and why are you there and why will nobody love you? You know, because I tried I, I was a people pleaser, of course, because I, I, I in my head, the way they were raising me was um I was thinking that if I was just better, if I got better grades, if I, you know, did better in dance, if I, you know, so. I was actually a good kid. I mean, I was on honor roll. I was the first chair viola in two symphonic orchestras. I taught myself to play piano. I was in dance. I was I did like I did everything. I thought I was doing everything right, but nothing was good enough. Nothing. So one night when I was about 17, I'm not going to lie. I went to their bedroom at night just before they were falling asleep. And I, I just I was so angry. I yelled, why the F don't you care about me? Why can't you effing love me? And that just brought on um, the worst assault that I had in that house um, that both parents participated in, um, you know, straddling me, slapping me, punching mm-hmm. me. I was strangled, thrown down a half a flight of stairs. It was awful. Um I honestly thought I was going to die that night, Um, but I got away and I ran out of the house and it was nighttime and it was a weeknight Um, and I ran through the streets aimlessly and somebody I happened to know from school happened to be passing through one of the streets. I was running down and asked if they could take me somewhere. So I ended up going to uh, one of my best friends. I, I was driven to her house and I spent the night there and nobody asked any questions, but now, my mother and stepfather didn't exactly call the cops or call around to find out where I was anyway. So obviously they didn't care, but um, the school cared the next day because I was in the same clothes and all beat up. And, uh, you know, there was concern. So, cert- child services were called and and there were some events after that, but um, I nothing was done about it. It was decided um, based on <clears throat> my mother and stepfather's testimony to the authorities that I was lying to get attention. I had self-inflicted all these wounds. And so I was right back where I started. So I just had to suffer until I was 18 and could legally get out of there. But that was the irony of it was that I got out of that house and I thought there's no way I will ever end up in an abusive situation or let anyone mistreat me ever again. I'm strong-willed, I'm independent, I'm I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna let that happen again. I fell right into the arms of a covert narcissist. And, you know, looking back on it, I realize, you know, my mother and stepfather turned me into a codependent. And, you know, I don't wear that label as a stigma. It just is what it is. I wanted, I thought I had to earn love. Mm -hmm. And this man promised me love. If basically, I mean, he didn't say it out loud. Well, sometimes he did further on in the relationship, but there were a lot of rules. He had a lot of requirements and a lot of rules. And if I followed the rules and I was a good girl, and yes, he would call me a good girl sometimes, just like a damn dog that then I would get love. And if I wasn't a good girl, then he withheld love or sometimes give me the silent treatment for days or weeks at a time. So, you know, a codependent and a narcissist are kind of a perfect match because one is serving the other one and the other one likes servitude. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, um, you know, 25 years later, I, I kind of woke up and there were some things that happened that I just realized that, um, you know this this wasn't a, a fulfilling life for me i w- i was sacrificing my entire existence um for somebody that obviously didn't love me um and i needed to make a change so that you know i could live the the kind of life i wanted i wanted to be with a partner who loved me like actually loved me for me regardless of anything about me um and i wanted to do things. I wanted to write, I had a degree in journalism, but he, you know, he isolated me so that I, he didn't even want me to have a career, really, you know, he kind of hindered a lot of successes and opportunities for me, um, just so that I would be held back um, from any freedom or independence or any opportunities to leave him. So it, it was a very strange situation, but definitely my childhood um set me up you know as far as my perspective on what love looked like and you know what a relationship looked like and and how the roles were um it, it wasn't what I had wanted for myself or what anyone would want to envision for themselves or anyone they love you know right
0: so your mom she
1: was a,
0: a pretty young mother she was a teen mother correct yes yeah so you know in and- For her upbringing, because a lot of times, you know, narcissists, they perpetrate the type of narcissism or abuse that they experience sometimes when they're young. So was her mother kind of a narcissistic abuser or or her father? Actually,
1: yeah, it was not my grandma. My grandma actually is. Just lovely. Um, My grandfather, um, I actually don't normally even call him that. um, But yeah, he was an alcoholic and a narcissist. Um, My grandma went through some just atrocious things with him. Um, So there were a lot of things. There was definitely a lot of abuse. I I know I've heard the story that at one point, my grandfather had put my mother and her two brothers in a tub. They were somewhere around middle school age or, you know, in grade school um, and held a gun to their head and said he was going oh, to kill them. So, I mean, they yeah, they went through some stuff. And I understand how that can affect somebody's parenting. But my mother just like I said, she did not want me. Um, the fam- it was actually my grandma and great grandma that that told her she had to keep me because they weren't going to have their only grand and great grandchild raised by other people. But um, my mother just always maintained like this distance emotionally from me. Um, She just couldn't, she just wouldn't love me. And so that was very, that's honestly, I mean, I've, I've had to go through a lot of healing with that. I mean, I'm going to be 48 and honestly, I can say that last year was probably when I finally kind of accepted it and, and, you know, that I'm okay not having a mother, but boy, is that a tough one? I mean, I always say it's like serial killers, even, you know, rapists, they have their mothers sitting behind them in court. And I'm, I think I'm a decent human being and I was always a good kid. And like, I just, don't understand how my you know i came out of this woman's womb and she just won't but my brother that she and her husband had a child together after she had a her um tubal ligation reversed so she Mm -hmm. could have a child um they had a child together and they raised him wonderfully he's (laughs) he he had the two parents everybody would want so it it feels very unfair so it takes a lot of uh It takes a lot of time to kind of get past that one. That's a big one. Yeah. So
0: do you feel like maybe because uh, she was still a child, you know, at the time of her conceiving you and maybe feeling like she wanted the spotlight on her or maybe wanted some sort of opportunity for herself or envision herself in some sort of respect, maybe she had ambitions of going to college or something like that was part of her reasoning for not wanting to raise you as the, as her child?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that. Yeah. I I mean, it was a hundred percent that she was ashamed. I, I was holding her back from living her life. However, she felt, you know, she should live it. I know that, um, you know, when I have tried to talk to her in the past, you know, it was brought up that basically I'm just the physical manifestation of her worst shame and regret in her life. Um, and, you know, so I get that, but, you know, it's still, it's like, you know, should I have to suffer for her sins? You know, if right. we kind of go into that realm. So, you know, and that, but tagging along on that, you know, I also consider my stepfather, um, his father was actually, um, he traveled for work. And so the mother, was left with my stepfather was the second youngest of five children and their mother literally abandoned them just took off and left them in an apartment by themselves. And for a significant length of time, they were going in the streets begging for food and mm-hmm. and you know clothing and just taking care of each other. And then they were put into foster homes where I know at least my stepfather was abused pretty badly. Um, so certainly these are two people who were um not healed and, and not willing to acknowledge um their past you know to the extent that they needed to to um be able to raise a child in in a healthy way but you know it wasn't fair to me either to have had to suffer for everything that they'd been through, because after everything I've been through, when I became a mother, I took the opposite route. You know, I right. I knew that I was going to love this child more than any mother loved their baby ever in history. And this child would know that and I would never demean or insult or humiliate or shame or guilt or do any of these things to my son that had been done to me. So I don't, it's hard for me. I understand why they were the way they were. But they also had a choice and and I go back to like, you know, thinking about intention and when you're looking at a little child and and you find it in you to harm them with nasty words or with physical assault. Um, I mean, it, it's just a matter of right and wrong. And I, I think that, you know, if you're willing to enact that wrong, um, you know, there there is something um, there's a serious issue there.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the hardest things I think for humankind to do is self-reflect because it forces you to take a look at things that you or others may deem as flaws. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on this earth here, in this life, you know, we have all of the senses, taste, touch, feel, here. All of these things make up a culmination of who we are. And sometimes when you have that mirror reflected back on you, you know, it's hard for you to just rationalize that and want to actually make a change for yourself. So there's a lot of people who are narcissists that walk around here and they think, well, you know, I've been hurt in my past. I've been abused. I've had this happen to me. And even with them acknowledging that they realize that they've been abused, they don't try to enact good behavior in their maybe relationships with other people or their friendships with people. They feel like because they've been abused and hurt that they can go around and hurt other people. So it creates a sick cycle.
1: It does create a cycle. It is awful. And I mean, when we're talking about narcissists specifically, you know, I should say this too, and I want to be very clear. And And I say it a lot, but not all narcissists are bad. So when I'm talking about narcissistic abuse, I am talking about narcissists who abuse people, they're intentionally causing harm to another human being. Um, but what makes them a narcissist, you know, there's all kinds of theories, but it does usually come from something stemming in your childhood. I mean, the two big theories are that, you know, as in my stepfather's case, um, you know, that you suffered all this, um, you know, it's just so hard for a child to develop a sense of self or a sense of any self-esteem when they are being abused. We can all say that that's correct so some of them like my stepfather come out of situations where they're neglected or abused and they need to feel important or superior to other people um, you know in order to feel good about themselves so it's about them having a self-esteem it's about them loving themselves and they feel they need to do that only if they drive the really expensive car. They have to have the Jaguar. They have to have the Rolex on their wrist and they have to have the biggest house on the block. And, you know, they have to be the biggest, have the best, have the mo- most money. They, you know, the status stuff, because it fills that emptiness that they they have inside of them. So I get that the other side of it is more what i can say about my ex-husband who's a different type of narcissist they say that some children you know like my ex-husband i mean i always used to say i loved his parents i think i fell in love with his parents um more so because they were like mr and mrs cleaver they were like tv show 1980s sitcom parents mm-hmm. they were just perfect so i couldn't imagine somebody coming out of that um The way my ex-husband did now, my ex-husband always felt slighted. He felt like um, he was second rate, low on the totem pole, and that his sister was the golden child and glorified. She got everything. He got nothing. He had that kind of perspective. So he kind of had this chip on his shoulder. Um, So for him, um, controlling and manipulating and and seeking this um, exaltation and appreciation from me or whoever else, it was filling his sense of self-worth that he didn't get from his childhood. So, uh, you know, can you understand it? Yes. But as somebody who you know, just tries to go around doing good and and, and being better. I, I don't know if it's my Christian beliefs or what, but I just feel like, you know, you still know right and wrong. There's still right. good morals and not so good. And, and when you're hurting another human being, you have to look at yourself. But a narcissist cannot possibly, as you already said, if they looked in the mirror, no, if they saw anything they didn't like, they wouldn't be able to handle that, you know, offense to their ego. Right, exactly.
0: Um, so you know, you just mentioned that CPS at one point in time got involved in um yeah. the abuse by your teachers calling into CPS. Now, did any of your family members know um about the abuse? Your father, I know you said that you did have some contact with your father um for a little while, but was was CPS ever called again or anything like that?
1: No. Um, so From as far back as I can remember, and I think this goes, whether you're a child or an adult, because I experienced this with my ex-husband as well, you know, typically victims of abuse are um, either told or threatened or, you know, in some way it's communicated that you better not open your mouth. Because if you expose the abuse, if you expose who the abuser really is, um, they're going to make sure that there's consequences that you're going to suffer, not them. So I was told, you know, and my mother, uh, wow, she was just gaslit me like you wouldn't believe. I didn't know the word for it. I was a kid, but, you know, just... That didn't happen. He never said that, you know, you're just lying to get attention. You're just jealous of my relationship with him, you know, putting all these ideas in my head, but I knew what was what. And, you know, there was no telling me otherwise, but I didn't dare tell anybody anything. There was no way. I mean, even I remember at school, there were kids that every once in a while, how'd you get that bruise on your forehead? Why do you have hand marks over there? I bumped into a wall or oh, silly me. I just, you know. I fell and somebody grabbed me trying to pull me, you know, I just made stuff up. Uh, you just don't want it. And plus you're kind of ashamed too. You don't want people to know that, you know, you're trying to live a normal life. I'm going to school. I'm trying to just be with my friends and play tag and, you know, go to dance class and laugh and just be a kid. And I don't, I didn't want it acknowledged. You know what I mean? So right. it was a, double edged sword, they're protecting myself from the more abuse by talking to somebody about it. And also because I didn't want anybody to know either. So, um, you know, unfortunately, when child services did get involved at that point, you know, their supposed investigation all it entailed was interviewing neighbors and some of the some of my mother and stepfather's employees well if mm. you're employed for somebody do you think you're really going to say how you really feel about them no you want your job so of course right. they were made out to be these wonderful people um neighbors you know uh nobody really saw a whole lot so it, there was nothing they could say. And a lot of narcissists, like my uh, stepfather especially, they're out in public. They're generous. They're charitable. They'll do anything for anybody. People find them funny and charming and, and you know, nobody would believe that they're this monster that you say they are, or that they're capable of doing these things. So it kind of creates, it's kind of all a setup for the victim that, you know, you are afraid to say anything because nobody is going to believe you. Nobody. Right. It's like Jekyll and Hyde how they put on two different types of fronts and
0: personalities. Yes. And, you know, what's crazy about CPS is, you know, it's supposed to be in the benefit of the child, protecting the child and their rights and their well-being. But so many times I've heard so many stories about abused women or children that, you know, abused children specifically, because we're talking about CPS, you know, that chronicle how CPS was called and no one did anything to get them into a safe position or a home. And even a lot of times, you know, unfortunately when these young children are taken out of the homes, they're put in, you know, group homes and orphanages. And a lot of times they're passed from house to house to house. And a lot of times in those particular houses, they're still abused because a lot of the people that do want to take on these children are oftentimes only doing it for a check. Yes.
1: And it's really sad. The other sad aspect of that, um, what I experienced, I mean, obviously they wanted to send me home and I said, the hell I'm going home with these people. It's not happening. Not not then. Um, So I was given the my uh, mother and stepfather decided that. I, you know, they were going along with that narrative about I self-inflicted all these wounds and and I'm lying that I must have mental problems. So they admitted to me to a mental facility for teenagers and I was fine with that. I didn't like it, but I was like, at least it's not home. But what upset me was that their son was roughly what, two or three years old at that time, my brother, um, a t- toddler and CPS did nothing about, yeah. I, I mean, the fact that even if there, the fact that they were called and that there's even a possibility that abuse is existing, you're taking one kid away but leaving the other there. It just never sat well with me. Right. Because I thought err on the side of caution. I mean, I, I would have hated for that. You know, he would have probably been more traumatized than I was because he wouldn't have understood. But, you know, even if he was put with family or something, I just thought it was really um, uh, it, it definitely spoke to how our system does not work very well to have left him there. Right. And, you know, I've also known um, children that have been taken out of the
0: homes. I used to work for a hospital and we dealt with a lot of child cases and what's interesting is i know how you just said you, uh, in your particular case they took you out of the home but kept your brother but mm-hmm. typically maybe this didn't happen before but it happens now they take all of the children now so mm-hmm. if one is abused everybody's got to go so maybe this is something that's a new law that they enacted because obviously if one child is being abused there's always the chance that the other can be abused too but yeah you never kind of know it seems like you know
1: it depends no. on who's the case worker well, and not just that, but, you know, this oh, it's it's just this is such a big subject. Um, and this is I, I actually talk about my childhood in, in a book that I'll be releasing next year. It's the prequel to the one that's out. But, you know, there there was an instance that I related to there's a book in the 1990s, early 1990s that came out. It's called a child called it. And it was supposedly one of the worst cases of child abuse in California. Um, And the, the actual child that they're referring to in the title that was called it um, is, is the one who actually wrote the book about his upbringing. And like me, In his household, he was actually one of, I believe, four or five children, but he was the only one that was abused. He was the only one out of all those children. And in my house, it was the same thing. It was just, you know, I was the unwanted one. I was not supposed to exist like they would tell me, you know. So in his case, I don't recall exactly what it was about him that, you know, caused his uh, mother to abuse him and not the others. But, you know, sometimes there is that factor. And I acknowledge that. But again, I just say err on the side of caution because if somebody's capable of doing the things they do to one child. There's no telling if they're going to do it to the others. It's just a tricky, I I would never want to be in the position of being in, in, you know, that field where I'd have to make those judgments about families. That's tricky. Yeah. Very sad.
0: So, um, At 18, you come across your ex-husband and you're going to school and you're getting your life together and you live in life to the fullest.
1: So when you (laughs) get with him, at that point, I'm sure you're probably like, yes, I'm out of the house, you know. (laughs) I I was out of the house, but man, it was rough. It was still rough. Um, You know, people always ask, like, you know, how did you not see him? As a narcissist, like you were raised by one, you ran away from one. Like, how did you not see that this man was a narcissist? Well, there's supposedly different types of narcissists. My stepfather is your typical, you know, very direct outwardly um, uh it's very clear that he wants to be revered. You know, he's not shy about it. Um, My ex though, is what you call a covert narcissist. So I liken it to like, if anybody's ever read any Winnie the Pooh books, you know, the character Eeyore, he's mm. like a bluish purple, pretty color. You know, he's always got his head down and like, poor me, nothing good ever happens. You know, <laughs> oh, he's Eeyore. just this boo mm-hmm. I know Poor ear. exactly. Woe is no. me. Woe <laughs> is me. That was my ex-husband. So I didn't for me, here's me being a people pleaser and me, like, despite everything, I was like the cheerleader It's like, no, we will. And I was trying to be resourceful and we'll get there. Oh, you want to buy a condo? We'll just both get jobs. We'll make, I'll make more money. I'll go do it. You know, we'll get a down payment. We'll get this going. Oh, you want a boat? Okay, no problem. We'll just do this. And I'll sell all of that. And, you know, I just wanted it. He had a way of <laughs> making me want to please him. It sounds so awful, but, you know, narcissists know how to manipulate you. They can, they're Mm -hmm. perceptive. They've got you written up and down. They know all about how you operate very quickly so they know what buttons to push to get you to do the things they want you to do. And a narcissist, no matter if he's uh, you know, the king of them like my stepfather or a covert little or like my ex, <laughs> they all are manipulating you to get you to serve them. They want servitude they right. want servitude so that they can feel all good about themselves and that you will, you know, think that, you know, exalt them and appreciate them and you know the problem is is that I didn't see the signs because it it, it is this it's covert it's a hidden narcissist but where he was narcissistic was this same again the the one thing they all need is to feel very very important um and, because he was very loving to you in the beginning of your relationship, right? Well, here's the thing about this. He was loving. Met his parents within the, I think it was only a weekend. I met his mom and dad. I loved them. But I mean, it was only three weeks in the first time he threw something at me and had an angry outburst. And that was like, oh, I don't I don't like this stuff. Anger honestly triggered me. And, and to this day, I mean, I, I've... I've gone through some therapy. So like my I don't react as much to my triggers and all that, you know, and my nervous system is settling. But boy, anger does not. (laughs) That just makes me want to get the heck out. Mm -hmm. So I did. I was like, I'm out. I'm good. Have a nice Mm -hmm. life. But you know, then he comes back with, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And all these excuses. And so then I'm excusing it myself saying, Oh, we all have bad days. We all wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe it was a bad, you know, stuff happens. We're human. I mean, did you, it's not like you like like, wanted to believe it. Of course he I him. did. What I wanted was love. Mm-hmm. And that's what it came down to for me personally. I wasn't I mean when your own mother doesn't love you I'm sorry but that is a wound that just ruins everything <laughs> going right. forward in your life you mm-hmm. just that's a hole that you just cannot fill um so I just wanted this man to love me so I'm like you know okay let's try it again And then it was another couple of weeks. Then it was this potential infidelity. And I never figured out if it was. Then it was actually finding him in another woman's apartment. Mm. Oh, she's just a friend. You weren't doing anything. Oh, okay. You know, and it was just this continual um, push and pull, as I call it. Because in between all these things, which were happening quite frequently, you know, we'd sit and watch you know tv and he'd caress my cheek and look at me with these googly eyes and every day tell me how much he loved me and it's the two of us against the world and he promises to love me forever and you know all the stuff Stuff I wanted to hear. And so I just, you know, then I start telling myself, well, maybe he'll mature with time. We are young and, you know, but it, it was always like I say it in my book, I felt like I was a hamster in a wheel. I kept running, but I was always in the same place. I was mm. never getting anywhere with him in our relationship. Like nothing was ever moving. If anything, it just got worse and worse. And after we had our son, that just I mean, i that was just a downward spiral because I was giving my time and attention to this newborn baby and not to him. And that was he just could not handle that. That was that was pretty much. That was it. That that was just the beginning of a very, very, very long ending that took almost 20 years, (laughs) unfortunately.
0: Can you chronicle some of the abuse that you endured um, from the hands of your ex-husband in your 25 year long relationship with him?
1: Yes. Well, the interesting thing about narcissistic abuse, it's not always physical, it's not always verbal. Narcissistic abuse encompasses all types of abuse. Mm. Not everybody that experiences narcissistic abuse um, experiences all the abuses. It can only be one or two or all of them, but there was definitely um, the verbal, um, a lot of gaslighting manipulation. So I had the psychological and emotional stuff, you know, constantly telling me he didn't say that he didn't do that. Well, what do you mean? I just saw you do that. Or I just heard you say, no, you didn't. You're crazy. You're, you know, and then he actually called me crazy so much that at one point I thought I was, and I was worried because I had this child I'm in charge of that. I actually went to the psychiatrist telling him the things that my, you know, husband was telling me. And he's like, yeah, I could see where maybe you're bipolar, you know, let's try some medication, put me on two medications bipolar disorder only to find out, you know, fast forward 20 years, you know, that actually it was CPTSD. And the Mm -hmm. fact that I was having, I was in a toxic and abusive relationship, Um, you know, but back to the actual abuse, there were these things that, you know, some would argue whether they're abuse, but I say they are because they're not nice. Um, Things like he would, When he would lay down, which he did every day for hours and night, lay down to watch TV, he had a very nasty-looking sharp switchblade right there, right by him. And I always said that was kind of like the shot collar that I didn't have around my neck because that knife scared me. Just the sight of it scared me, and I knew it was always there. So if I was out of line or spoke up about something, I just didn't because I was nervous. It, that made me very nervous. So that that to me is abusive. That's intimidation. Um, there was, you know, a lot of accusations and isolation, um, it, you know, moved us out 90 miles out of the city away from everybody and everything that I knew or he did either um, just to make sure I didn't have any outside influence he didn't like me on the phone he didn't like me texting anybody so i just stopped i mean he it it was just better to keep the peace financial abuse um people really don't understand financial abuse but it's very common in narcissism um uh, narcissists tend to like money um and they like your money and they like their money but they don't like you using any money (laughs) whether it's yours or (laughs) theirs. The irony in that. (laughs) The irony, but the extent like I even saw in my childhood. I mean, I remember going to the doctor once um, a friend took me because I had a terrible urinary tract infection. And any woman that's out there can understand when you have to go to the ER because they can be so awful. And boy, my stepfather never let me hear. I mean, to this day, I probably, if I Spoke to him, would still be hearing about it. But my ex was the same way. He was allowed to go to the doctor and do whatever, but I was not. Like, we did not, like, he was even complaining about the bills that came after having our child. Like, what? You, know, you, I you played a hand birth. in this, sir. <laughs> right. I just you helped gave me get birth here. And oh, he was like raging mad that I had cost this money. Um, you know, so financial abuse, I've had a lot of women tell me too, that, and I experienced this, um, my ex wouldn't let me, we uh, wouldn't have a joint checking account or any account with me. His money was his money, his retirement fund, um, house, just, they don't want you to have access to anything because if you have money or if you have access to money, then that gives you some freedom to leave and they're not trying Mm -hmm. to let you leave they want to trap you um they also sometimes and my ex did try this with me you know after you have kids or even the first one oh no stop working you know you should be a stay-at-home mom stay at home with the kids it sounds really nice and Mm -hmm. and all that but then again you're put in the same situation now you're dependent on this man for money Right. And you have no way out now. Towards the end of my marriage, the last four and a half years, my ex flipped the switch on me on that one. But it's still financial abuse. He decided he just wasn't going to work anymore. That was it. He Excuse me, sir. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Excuse me, sir. You're not kidding me. Just like that. I'm like, That's we crazy. have a kid in high school. Like, and and my ex actually, he he made significant income. Significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't know what to do. I mean, he literally didn't have a job anymore and just laid on the couch all day, every day. Um, so did you have to pick up a second job in order? To I had to pick up whatever I could. I mean, and, you know, thank God that I'm resourceful and, and I have a hard work ethic and that, you know, I'm trustworthy and reliable that I could um, you know, pretty instantly do that. But, you know, the pressure, you know, 10, 12 hour days, seven days a week, like, okay. you know, it, it was hard on me. And, you know, I'm not trying to complain, but the fact that he could work, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. Mm-hmm. It, it It's just, you know, and I tried to tell him, like, excuse me, we have a mortgage, we have a child, like, Right. Be a man Not to be rude. And he exactly. And he's like, well, you know, he says, I've wor- I've worked the last 17 years. I'm like, 17 years. Like, <laughs> still young. get out there. Their balls are still working. <laughs> They're not brittle. Drink yeah, milk, there's no going. expiration date on working. Some people have to work till the day we die. Like, right. I, excuse it's me. It's such a like, life. Exactly. I'm like, you're the one that wanted this house and all this stuff. And we got to pay. And we did not just so you know, we did not have like savings or any we were literally paycheck to paycheck. So this was not a situation. I mean, it, it, to put that pressure, but I did it. And, and I, I I am actually glad that I look at it now as a blessing, because becoming the primary breadwinner, and then learning how to negotiate my finances because I mean, obviously I wanted out probably 15 years before that happened. I, honestly, I was I was done well before we started and, right. and and finding myself at that point and with a lot of stuff that happened towards the end, I was I, I look back now grateful that I was put in that position because by the end of it, when we did actually get divorced, I you know what? I just said, you know, just what he always said. What's mine is mine and what's his is his. And he didn't have a whole lot of anything, but I had the ability. I had the ability to say, I have income. I can pay this mortgage. I can keep my son in his childhood home. I need full custody of my son. I can financially 100% support everything he needs. I don't need a dime of child support from this guy who doesn't even have a job anyway. (laughs) Like, I'm done. Walk right. away. And I was able to do that. Thank God he didn't fight it. You know, I, I had that blessing as well. But um, and and I realize it doesn't go that easily for most people. But I was just glad that, um, you know, that I could. But I'm going to tell you that it, it had gotten so bad that. I I would have walked out as long as I had my kid. I didn't care about the TVs and the sofas and money. He could have taken everything. He could have taken the clothes off my back. As long as I walked out with my kid, that's all that mattered. And I actually have great admiration for somebody I've met, um, you know, more recently in the last year. Um, You know, and I won't say her name, but she was brave enough to leave an abusive situation with her two boys i believe they were 11 and 13 something around that age and both have autism mm. um very very well on the spectrum and they had to leave their pets they had to leave their their you know they just had to sneak out and take whatever they could carry in a backpack and they have made it um you know they're settled into an apartment now they are safe they're eating um Yes, they're in a good place. But to take that kind of courage. Oh, I don't even know if I have that much courage. So, you know, there's a lot of gosh, I'm just getting chills just thinking about what she went through on the streets with those two boys. It just I just remember one day she had her phone and she messaged me and she said all we could find to eat today in the garbages was one piece, one measly piece of toast that we had to share between the three of us. That's all we had to eat all day. And I just, I wished that she was geographically closer. There was just no way for me to physically get to her. Otherwise I'd have taken her in a heartbeat, but you know, there, people need to realize there are people out there that are in these situations that, That is the extent they have to go to to get out. And and so for some of us, we have a little easier way out. We're just kind of sometimes we hold ourselves in situations um, Mm -hmm. that certainly there's some fear in leaving and there's fear of the unknown. But really, I kind of found at the end that I was the only one holding me in there. Like, you know, I, I kind of called it the hypothetical leash. I thought I was on mm-hmm. this leash and, and I'm, I suppose he thought I was too, but really, you know, I could have probably just walked out anytime. Yeah. But well, you know, a
0: lot of times, you know, Those who have experienced abuse in their childhood or in their past in some respect, it's hard for them to get themselves out of that predicament, especially because that's the type of relationships that they're familiar with, these abusive, toxic situations. And so it's really the will to live and want to do better for yourself as to the motivation of how you get out of your situation. You know, you just made the perfect example about, you know, the woman with the two autistic children that had the will to live, that wanted to fight not only just for herself, yeah. but her children, because she knew that this was not a healthy re- uh, situation, not only for herself, but especially not her children who are autistic. And so she wanted exactly. to
1: Exactly. And I mean, for me, that was actually the turning point for me was my my it was my will to live, um, certainly not as dire as hers. But, um, you know, one of the biggest things in my mission to create this awareness is to let people understand the effects of their words and their actions. Um, at, it, it, while I was still the last year and a half of my marriage to my ex, I was so ill. I was so ill. I had a couple dozen symptoms, random symptoms. Um I was blacking out a lot. Um I my hands would go completely like dead and numb all the time. Um erratic heartbeats, short of breath, um headaches, stomach, you know, just all these random things, but you know at one point at the end of 2018 I had dropped within two weeks dramatically for no reason. I fell to an, uh, like a skeletal, sickly 93 pounds. Mm. I could barely move. I could barely breathe. Long and short of it, doctors don't know what to do with me. they ran all kinds of tests. They tried to give me pills for my symptoms, but I mean, I was at the gastroenterologist, the cardiologist, the neurologist, the sleep neurologist, the psychiatrist, the family. It was was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So finally, a neurologist gets me. He says, I know what's wrong with you. And he gets me with Mayo Clinic. Um, They took a cortisol test. Cortisol is a stress hormone that is, I call it the sister hormone to adrenaline. So adrenaline, when you're like in a survival mode or you're trying to save somebody's life, you know, your adrenaline gets going. When you're under extreme stress, like in a toxic or hostile, you know, environment, that's your cortisol. Cortisol is that stuff that makes you anxious and you're sweating and panicky and all that. So I had had apparently so much cortisol running through my body at such astronomically high levels over such a long period of time that my body thought that I had like a cancer or something it had to eradicate. So it started killing itself. It was my white blood cell count um, just depleted. Um, I became autoimmune. Um even my red blood cells were being killed off Um, tissue, muscular stuff, neurological damage. I mean, it was, it's crazy to think, I mean, but in, in this age of social media, we have words, pictures, um, you know, people hide behind a lot of things, but the effect it's having on our bodies is real. So at, at this point, I had the doctor sit me down and he said, Dana, your body is literally every major organ system in your body is at base minimal survival rates. Your body is doing everything it can just to keep your lungs to help you breathe and to keep your heart beating. But if you don't change your life situation, you know this is going to kill you. And, and I didn't realize like stress can kill you. The stress mm-hmm. of a relationship can kill you. And that's when I was like, I'm I'm too young. I mean, I'm in my early forties. Like, why would I, I, I want to watch my son graduate from high school. I want to watch him get married and I want to see my grand. I don't want to die yet. Like I'm not done here. So that's when I decided I, I, it, it was hard, but it wasn't, you know, I had given sacrificed so much time so much of my life to this man hoping one day he would love me but he didn't he was stagnant he was exactly the same person he was when i met him and he didn't mature and he didn't grow up and you know he he wasn't going to love me any more now than he would have then and so it was just time. And and it's very hard for a faithful person to come to uh, the decision to have a divorce because, you know, you, you think if you try hard enough or if, if you're better, they'll be better. And but man, I tried. I tried so hard. I tried. And I just I, I it was just at the point where if I wanted to live, I needed to choose myself. So that was what made me finally just call the attorney and just be like, look, I got to get, I got to get out of here. I just get it done. I don't even care whatever he wants. I just want out. Right. You know, the thing
0: is a lot of, you know, I've heard this from some women that have been in abusive situations or even just toxic relationships in general. They always seem like they can change the person. They want to change because they're so deeply in love with this individual that they just feel like if it's something they can do more or do better, then maybe that will motivate them to be more faithful or motivate them to whatever it is that they're trying to motivate them to do. And the reality is you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped, but most importantly, who doesn't understand that they actually have a problem because a lot of times, you know, women think that, oh, you know, I can do this or do that. But, you know, the other person that they're in a relationship, a lot of times doesn't feel like there's an issue or that they have an issue and they're completely comfortable being who they are. And I think yeah. for women, sometimes we have to realize when to cut the cord. But also, I think a lot of why especially women push when it comes to trying to make relationships better is because as women, I feel like we've been so codependent on men in relationships since forever, because that's what a lot of women have been taught to be codependent on a man and to make a relationship work. And you need to do this more to make a more faithful or whatever it is. Women have taken, you know, a big hit when it comes to relationships. So I feel like that natu- it's kind of something that's been ingrained in our mind. So we're always trying to make things better.
1: Exactly. And the other take on that, you know, to tag along with that is when you're in these situations, in these abusive situations, I know for me, and, and I imagine a lot of other uh, women can relate, they are good to you. There is that, again, that push and pull that they, when they feel you pulling away or, you know, kind of onto them. They're suddenly very loving and they tell you everything you want to hear and all that until you're appeased enough so that they can treat you like crap again. And then they love you. Then they treat you like crap. So you go back and forth, back and forth. But for me, it was like, okay, he could be good to me. So when he's bad to me, Mm -hmm. that must be a choice. So it was partially like I was hoping like, yes, like you said, if I do this, do that. I mean, at one point I Googled, I went on Google and and typed in how to be a better wife. Like, what is wrong with that? (laughs) Because I thought it was me. I thought, exactly, if I was skinnier, if I I cooked a better hot roast or something, (laughs) like, I thought that was the magical, like, how can I be a better wife? I don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And, but that's the problem is that, I go back to the idea of him being a choice is that there is nothing I could have done because it was his choice to treat me badly. And certainly nothing I ever did warranted, you know, the treatment that I was getting for it. So, yeah, I think there, it's so complex. I mean, I think we, as human beings, you know, like we talk so extensively about childhood and, and how it affects, you know, who we end up in relationships with, but, you know, like, All of our life perspectives and life experiences, random things people have said, things we have heard, TV shows we've watched, you know, we have all this stuff that just gets in our brain and affects every action and reaction the rest of our lives. And it's so interesting. I'm sorry to go off on this philosophical tangent, but if you really think about it and then we're all walking around with all this stuff stuff that explains it and and you know is reason for everything we say and do and but so is everybody else and then you right. just have these collisions sometimes where two people come together and it's just boom just right. doesn't work you know <laughs> right atomic bomb <laughs> oh my goodness yes
0: <laughs> but to me it's also sometimes you come across these people to shake things up and for you to realize what yes. problems you may internalize that you don't realize you've internalized. And that person really is there. Cause we talk about spirituality a lot on this show. And sometimes you attract those like-minded people that have been through some of the similar situations you have been through. And, you know, they're, your they're part of your life partners because they're part of your life path and how you can grow. So, Absolutely. you know, you may be with that toxic person because maybe you need to, realize that you need to let go of toxic relationships and they're there to kind of help you break that cycle. And once some, a lot of times once you break that cycle, good things end up coming from you because you learn those lessons and that's how life is. It's about learning lessons. Some good, some bad, you know?
1: And you know what? I struggled a long time as a faithful person. I struggled with God a lot. I, I, I would be on my knees at mass every Sunday, sometimes crying, often crying, um, cause I was finally, you know, he didn't go to mass with me and I would just be like, why, what did I ever do? What did I do to deserve this? Why am I, why did you put me here? Nobody wanted me to be here, but you God. So right. why am I here? And it took, uh, one of my priests who actually is an, an amazing and close friend of mine now. And, you know, he took me to the side after the divorce and everything. And he's like, you know, there are a lot of people who, that are, on this earth. They have no obligation to love you because they didn't give birth to you. They're not your family necessarily, but they love you because they see value in you. You just don't see it in yourself. And mm-hmm. and you have to stop focusing on what, you know, the people who aren't seeing the worth in you and focus on the people that do and focus on your talents. He said, have you ever thought that maybe you were given these, these talents of writing and speaking and, You know, that maybe the plan all along was for you to endure all of this to help people because you said you always said you wanted to help people and get into psychology or writing. And I thought, oh, (laughs) <laughs> all makes sense now. You mean like God actually had this all planned out? Like, yes, He did. And you know what? And for people that I've shared that with, that's you know want to poo-poo on faith and and God and everything, because there are those people. I say, you know what? If it makes me feel better, if it makes me feel better that I have this life purpose and the, and this special reason that I was put here, then so be it. Let me feel better because having that conversation with my priest. And, and the self-respect and self-love that I have developed, you know, I've never had a healthy, you know, self-esteem and now I, 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 I am seeing what I'm doing, and I can honestly say I've I've never even been proud of myself. My mother and stepfather, neither of them has ever once in my entire almost 48 years of life said that they are proud of me, but I'm giving that to myself. I love myself. I am proud of myself. I am connecting with amazing people who have no obligation, like my priest said, to care about me or to care about one word that I write or say, but there are that do value it. And those are my people. Those are my tribe. And those are the people I was meant to connect with here on this earth. So, so be it. And it does make me feel better. And I hope I'm making other people feel better because we all have some gift or some worthiness. We just have to see it in ourselves and stop looking to other people for it.
0: Yes. Yes, you are. You definitely are doing your mission. You're on uh, your mission. I'm trying, girl. (laughs) You got (laughs) this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, my question is, um, you know, a lot of times people that experience narcissistic abuse and various different forms of abuse, sometimes they mirror some of the behaviors that they've experienced in the hands of their abusers. Was there ever a particular time for you where you found yourself mirroring that type of behavior that you've experienced?
1: You know, I that that's a phenomenal question, actually, that nobody has asked me, but I'm glad you asked it because, you know... That is something trying to be self-aware, you want to make sure because I've seen people that have narcissistic qualities, but they're not narcissistic. And something when I was going through therapy that came up, so like I realize I'm remarried and I have a beautiful, healthy relationship with my husband. He I absolutely adore this man. Um, but I notice I I can be very controlling, but on unreasonable things, like he might pull a new package of ground beef out of the freezer. Whereas I already have a half package, you know, in a container that needs to be used first, you know, and I'll be like, no, don't use that. You have to use that one. Like I, I, and it's so silly. Like, I don't want to be like ruling and controlling how everything has to be. And that's just a very minor example, but I realized through therapy that it's because I've always had to be, I've, I've had to survive. I have had to survey my, the, my people and my surroundings for any threats or it makes me feel better. Basically it's comforting to me to know what to expect and to have a little control and to have structure. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I get a little like micromanaging, and a little bossy. And, and I don't mean to come off that way. because it's not who I am, but it comes from that need for whatever reason to, to control the things around me so that I don't feel threatened. If that makes any sense. It's yes, that does. It's such an awful thing, but I have come to the conclusion because it is something I think a lot of I've, I have found that a lot of abuse victims ask themselves, am I the narcissist? Mm-hmm. Um, but I have come to the conclusion. I don't believe that I am because I, I just don't. I have too much empathy for to be able to hurt somebody like that. I mean, I feel terrible if I might say something a little too directly that somebody takes wrong. It, it just makes me feel terrible. So I, I just I and, and narcissists, that's the one sign you can certainly look for. If somebody has absolutely no remorse mm-hmm. whatsoever, they are not sorry for who they are. That to me is a sign you're dealing with a narcissist. So if you're not that way, you're good. You're OK. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, you know, I feel like when you have a child, a lot of times with your abuser, it's more difficult to get out of the circumstances so for you did you feel like because you also had a child with your ex-husband that it was harder for you to get out of the situation and was he ever yes. abusive to your
1: son and did he ever did your son ever witness any of the abuse in the home? Oh, okay i'll go backwards on that the, my son witnessed Pretty much. I mean, he couldn't help but hear the verbal Um, anything else he did not witness. He did not see texts and emails. Um, He did not see a lot of the physical stuff that would happen. Um, And anything that he might have heard would be denied by his father. So he doesn't believe it happened. Um, and thinks I'm lying about it, you know, those things like his father said, which is unfortunate. Um, but was he ever abused? He was also verbally, um, really cut down and insulted and demeaned and humiliated and embarrassed and and um, just it was so hard for me to sit there and watch him get treated the same way. And there were um, a handful of times that I had to literally throw my physical body between my ex and our son. I mean, even when my son, I, I remember him being maybe six years old. I mean, that's little, you know, walking into the house and my son was on our living room sofa and my ex had him held down by the neck with yeah. the one hand and had his fist raised up with the other. And and unfortunately I walked in on that a few times, um, never actually went through with punching, but you know, you don't do that to your kid. Right. He even put his hands on a, ch- you know, a kid that was there to play, um, somebody else's child oh um, that I had to get involved in and to the point where it, it didn't take too long for even my son, uh, to realize that he didn't want to have playdates at our house anymore because playdates usually ended up with his friend's crying hysterically that they wanted to go home and then we'd never see them again. Or I'd get calls from their mothers saying, are you safe? What's going on there? What's happening to which I would have to smile and act like, you know, Oh no, everything's fine. You know, just Mm -hmm. kids not, you know, pretend like the kids just weren't getting along and a little sensitive. And, you know, it's really a, a darn shame that I always say that, you know, being with a narcissist, you kind of, I hated who he turned me into because I ended up having to be as much of a liar as he was with the way I had to tell other people, you know, make excuses or deny things that were happening. Um, You know, so it was really hard. But my son, you know, it's tricky because despite what he has seen and heard and what he knows, he knows who his father is, um, doesn't like it, told me. A few times he doesn't ever want to be like his father, Um, but at the same time, that's his male role model. So he has a lot of his father's qualities, you know, nonverbal, you know, glares and and gestures and things that they've honestly been a little triggering for me on occasion. But, you know, that's a tricky one you know, I, I, all I can do is hope and pray for my son. And, and he's a good young man. He's 20 years old now. A very good young man. Very, uh, very good heart. But at the same time, he's always going to want his dad's approval. So he does have a very, uh, closer relationship than I'm comfortable with, uh, with his dad, but, you know, I stay out of it and, and let him figure that out for himself because, you know, I know that, like I said, I'm going to be 48 next month and I just kind of resolved my mommy issues Mm -hmm. a year ago. So it takes time. It, that's a tough one when you're dealing with, you know, love and acceptance from a parent. So,
0: yeah. So your son still has a relationship with, um, his father, because he he's endured some of the uh, witnessing of the physical abuse and verbal abuse and different types of abuse you've endured by your ex-husband, has he been in therapy or do you recommend therapy for any child that's witnessed any abuse at the hands of their
1: uh, abusers or any of that? My son has not, um, nor would he be willing. And I'm going to be completely honest. And I know there's going to be listeners that are going to just start hating on me, but I personally, for, for valid reasons, do I am not a fan of traditional talk therapy, Mm. but I do believe that everybody, when they are ready to heal, because not everybody that goes to therapy is ready and somebody is willing and ready to go to therapy. There are now so many, um, options for that, um, because of this lung syndrome that I developed um as a result of the abuse um you know and triggers and the CPTSD having to go somewhere every, you know, every Thursday at three o'clock or whatever to rehash stuff and 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 kind of give somebody the backstory. I just I just don't think that that's effective for me. Um I what was effective for me was having therapy that was instant and available at times that I needed it at times I was triggered at times I was you know emotionally dysregulating um, because of some trigger to the past and so for me naturally being a writer writing therapy um, is something I happened upon um, and it involves a combination of reading listening writing um, but it's something you can do At any time. And that worked for me. That was extremely effective. I know people who have done art therapy. I have heard about music therapy. Um, You know, there's so many different therapies now, like I said, that that people can um, release the things that they need to release um, in order to move on and and you know, be accepting of it. But I think that's essentially what healing is, is accepting what happened, getting past the anger about it and the hurt about it and just accepting it happened, accepting who you are and valuing yourself as a result of what happened. I don't like when people use these words that they're broken or damaged. They're not broken or damaged. They were hurt, mm-hmm. you know, that, Little <laughs> that doesn't make not broken. them... <laughs> yeah. But even still, I mean, you know, I just don't think I think that we need to learn to to, to talk to ourselves a little bit better. You know, mm-hmm. if I walk around saying I'm broken and damaged, how is that? How am I going to enact that then as opposed to saying, you know what, I fell down, I got my, my knees scraped up and, and some bruises and I'm even bleeding a little over here. But, you know mm-hmm. what, I'm going to stand right back up and wipe it off and put a Band-Aid on it. And it's going to heal, it's going to take a little time, but we're going to get through it. and it's going to feel a little bit better every day, you know, and it does. So, you know, it's just how you talk to yourself and how you think about things. And I don't ever want to think of myself as broken or damaged, because when I thought of myself as broken or damaged, I was attracting other people who were broken Mm -hmm. and damaged and thought that and I needed to surround myself with I, I wanted to surround myself with people who were healthy and positive and, you know, would have that type of influence in my life and so I've done that and it's been tremendously helpful. Yeah.
0: So in a situation where someone's being abused, is there a way friends or family can be a support of them in their you know in their issues with the abusers or is there anything that family and friends can do to help?
1: You know, that's a tricky one because unfortunately, even, you know, from my experience, even when you want to leave, you don't. And there's not one thing anybody can tell you or do that's going to make that difference. You could have, mm. there's nothing that anybody could have done. I needed to do it. What mm. people can do is just be available. I think that was the biggest help is just to, because you don't want to call too much attention to it. because, again. The exposure of it is what's going to cause the consequences. And it, 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 you have to be very careful. All you can do is just say, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk. Mm-hmm. If you ever want me to come over for a cup of coffee, glass of wine, whatever it is you all drink, let me know. Or if you want to come to me, just leave the invitation out there. But if somebody comes to you, I, it's not so much about what you can do versus what you should not do. Please, please, please do not ever dismiss somebody with words like, I can't believe he would do that to you or she, because it goes both ways or, mm-hmm. oh, they don't seem like that. They were nice to me. They seem nice. Don't invalidate somebody. If they have the courage to tell you what's going on, even if you don't believe them, just give them a hug. Tell them mm-hmm. it's gonna be okay. Speak some positivity to them. Mm-hmm. That's what you can do. You can offer them resources. Ask them, do you want me to call a free legal service? Do you want me to call a woman's shelter and see if they have a place for you? Do you want me to see if so and so will let me let you stay in their, you know, basement or their extra bedroom while you sort things out? Or are you safe? and comfortable, what can I do? But just please don't sit there and say, Oh, you got to leave them or you better get out of there. You should, 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 or I don't believe you because those things that personal clam back up and the amount of courage they'll need to speak to somebody again is going to be two or three times as much, which means that probably won't happen. And unfortunately, in a lot of these situations, um, you know, unfortunately, it's women and men, but, you know, let's just say women uh, don't make it out of those homes alive. So if they're Mm -hmm. having enough, you know, bravery to come to you, please take them seriously. Yeah.
0: And, you know, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. Right. You said people are going to put on a brave friend or a united friend in front of you because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. But, you know, abuse happens in almost any type of household. It doesn't matter whether the person is lower class, whether they're middle class. Thank you. I remember recently um, I heard a story of this woman who owned a business and she married someone who was in China. Her business was in China for an extended period of time and it eventually moved to the U.S. here. But the man she married was extremely powerful and so was his family. And when she brought both her husband and herself over here to the States here, she was talking about how things started to go downhill, how he started physically abusing her, verbally abusing her, was busting out her car windows and just all types of stuff. But the thing with her situation was because she also came from such a wealthy background, she never really had to take initiative to do anything because she's always had people to do things for her. So when it came to trying to seek help in the situation, she didn't know where to turn to and she was even more afraid because this man was so powerful. So right. if I call the police, what's going to happen to me? Is he going to send a hitman to kill me or kill our child because there was also a child involved. So yeah. things got really you know, really sticky. And my advice to her was, you know, try to get a lawyer, you know, try to get a lawyer to help you with the process. You definitely need a police report if he's, you know, destructing your property. And, you know, her daughter was born in China. So there was the immigration situation. If I call the police, Mm -hmm. is my daughter going to get deported back to China? And I said, there's lawyers to help you for that. Get temporary custody, you know, in emergency situations, you know, but it, it. I mean, You don't always have the answers, even as a friend or a family member to help people, especially when you haven't experienced it yourself. You don't always know what to do. And it's a tough situation to be in, not just for the person that's being abused, but sometimes the friends to sit there and look on at this abuse and not know what to do. You kind of feel helpless and frustrated sometimes because you want to help.
1: Oh absolutely. I mean I think most people would want to help and the other thing like what I run into now is when people reach out to me. I have people in Australia, the UK halfway across this country. the laws are completely different you yeah. know the the social system's different, the government's different. I, yeah, but I, I do the same thing. I think you you talk to a lawyer, I tell people you don't have to do anything. A consultation is usually free, but at least it gives you an idea based on the laws and and whatever your specific situation is. A lawyer can tell you what life looks like beyond this or what life will look like getting out of it. And then you have to sit back and determine whether you want to proceed or whether you won't. And I don't lie to people. Um I, I hope always for the best. I but boy it can get ugly it can get ugly in any divorce or in any even if you're not married just custody issues and whatever it's gonna get ugly but boy it could be a lot worse if you stay. So you just have Mm -hmm. to make the decision based on um, what you find out after getting a legal consultation and decide if, if you're willing to go through it, because, you know, I don't judge people and not everybody, everybody's in a completely different situation and in a Mm -hmm. completely different mindset. And, and it is emotionally and physically exhausting, especially when you have to put up a front for your kids or worry for their physical safety and, um, So you just have to do what you feel is right in your gut and what you're willing to do. And, you know, whether people decide to stay or leave or whatever they choose, I just, you know, I always just say, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help you, whatever you need, we'll get you through it. Yeah. And
0: I know that you were saying that, you know, the police were called in one of the instances with your ex-husband and mm-hmm. the police didn't do anything. And usually with restraining orders, they really don't hold much weight. You know, they they really can't no. completely protect you either.
1: No. Um, you know, he shot a gun outside my bedroom window. Um, there were witnesses in the area. Um, the property at that point was, we were already divorced and, and he'd want, he signed the house over to me. So I was the only name on the title and the deed, but they would not arrest him. They would not, um, remove him from my property. Um, and I certainly wasn't going to stay there and spend the night after that happened because right. what would happen after they left. Right. So um, it it's just very unfortunate that at that point, the authorities told me that if they had had video evidence that showing him shooting the gun, that then they could arrest him. And mm-hmm. I just remember looking at the cop and saying, well, That's nice. I know you can go on Amazon now and buy blink cameras and there's ring doorbells. But in 1950, 1970, you know, Mm -hmm. like, it's not like abuse just started now. Right. What, What was done back then? because whatever was done back then is what I need done now. And you're right. It was nothing what ended up happening that night because I was terrified. I was not staying in my house and let them leave me there and they would not remove him from my property and he refused to leave. So no, I wasn't staying there. I was not staying there. So, but this tells you how jacked up the system is, is that They tell me they can't do anything, but at the same time, when I said I wasn't staying there and I packed a bag to leave to go somewhere else, they said, well, give us the address where you're going because we're going to have two cops escort your car in front of you and one cop drive behind you. We'll leave three other squad cars here to make sure he doesn't follow you. So they were worried. They were worried and Mm -hmm. they had valid reason to be worried, Mm -hmm. but they didn't do anything. Right. So it's very disappointing. And, and I don't mean any disrespect. I want to put that out there. I have the utmost respect for, you know, our police officers. My, my father is actually not my stepfather. My biological father is a retired Chicago cop. And so I have the utmost respect for them. They're going out and laying their lives on the line every day and they can only do what they can do. But my gosh, somebody needs to change the way the system works. Absolutely, and these are the things that
0: we need to be fighting for, not some of the unnecessary yes. things that we're currently fighting for right now. Exactly. Because, I mean, there's, you know, I was reading there's 1.2 million women that experience a physical, meant uh, verbal abuse from their abusers yearly. Yes it's alarming more than men. It was 700,000 men that experienced it yearly, which is still high, but considering the amount of women that experienced that, I don't really understand why that is. And we need to do better at protecting our women and just people's rights in general and their well-being because there's so much that's wrong with our system and we just we really just need to do better as a nation
1: (laughs) exactly but you know as far as what people can do though i i always say it starts at home you know Mm. i can't change the world i mean i'll try but i can't change the world i can only change The people who are around me so my husband i love him and make sure he feels loved and that he goes out in the world and is kind to other people and Mm -hmm. is generous and helps who he can same with my son. I raised him in the church. I like to think that that helped him, you know, more so than a lot of, you know, young people that are, you know, not really involved in, in any kind of faith anymore, you know, but he he has respect for other people and for his elders and he's disciplined and, and he's going out and doing good things with his life, you know. So I just say that's my responsibility as a wife and mother is to make sure my people that are right here in this house that I'm putting them out. Out the, in the world and like a domino effect you know we will use our good to have the effect on the community that we right. live in and then maybe the community you know it'll just kind of keep expanding but you know i mean if we're all just a little kinder and a little more considerate you know imagine how it's free and it doesn't take much effort and imagine what a better place this world could be I right mean, absolutely Kindness goes a long ways. <laughs> yes, it, re- it really does. It really does. So
0: lastly, what are some steps that people can take in order to get out of their abusive situations?
1: You know, I again, everybody's situation is completely different, but I think that the most important thing is to make sure whatever you do that you are going to be safe. Make sure you are going to be in a safe place place if you feel threatened in any way um you know that you're going to be with people or have constant communication at least with people that you can trust um you know in case of an emergency um you know for me i was planning for a really 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 long mm-hmm. time so honestly i was socking away a lot of cash and i made sure you know like my life insurance policy and Um, You know, some assets that I had were only in mine and my son's name. I did not have my ex-husband even when we were married as any kind of a beneficiary or anything because I wanted to remove the possibility that he thought that maybe uh, me not being alive anymore might give him some financial uh, win or gain. Um, Mm -hmm. But I put us in a good financial situation just stocking money away where I I could get us out if I needed to. It was more a matter of gauging when the time was right, you know, and I think the only person that could know that is the person that has to make that decision. Um, you know, and when the time is right, you just, uh, you know, and and I hope that there are people listening that maybe it is and I don't want to minimize it by saying it's just verbal or emotional abuse because it's, it's awful. It's just as um, harmful. But, you know, you just have to be prepared because I think a lot of people are urged to leave or feel like they want to leave. So they do, but then they return to it. And if you return to it, it's just that much harder. You have to make a resolute decision um, and stick with it. And if there's Mm -hmm. children involved, all I can tell people is there are shelters. There are a lot of good people still in this world. You will have food. You will have shelter. You will Mm -hmm. have clothing. You will be okay. You'll Mm -hmm. be okay okay um you know and your kids will be okay somehow it'll all work out it's not going to be pretty it's going to be rough and and, you know if there's a legal battle like i said with a divorce or custody it it probably will not be uh very pleasant to go through but um certainly i want people to understand that if you do go through it and you get out of it there's another side but just gauge things you're the best person to know what what your situation is plan for it if you have to but like the person the gal with the two autistic kids that she just had she their lives were at stake they just they saw an out and they had to just go they had to just get out but it's difficult it's not easy Yeah. Got to take it step by step and day by day. That's all you can do. Exactly. And just make sure you have your support, you know, whether it is a parent or a sibling or a friend or whoever, you know, there, there are people, even if you feel alone, I promise you, there are people, even people that don't know you that would absolutely um, reach out and, and be there for you if you needed anything.
0: Yeah, but now you're in a healthy, happy I relationship am. and you're thriving. You're uh currently working on two other books and oh, you yeah. already pro- uh, produced your book gasping for air. So when can we expect these two other books to drop?
1: I'm trying. I'm looking. At- <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I know you're working <laughs> they, overtime. They are written, no but yeah, right now I'm on the tail end of doing some of my revisions mm-hmm. on the sequel. And the publisher has the prequel. So then <laughs> probably in October, we'll swap them and she'll look at my revisions on the sequel and I'll redo the revisions on the prequel. Um, hopefully, I would like to think maybe by spring next year, summer at the okay. latest, we should have both of them. But yeah, definitely, if anyone wants to follow me on social media or check my website, um, DanaSDS.com. Uh, I will keep everybody posted on when those will be released. All right. And then um, what is the basis of these
0: two b- books that you're currently working on?
1: So the prequel to Gasping for Air is talking about my childhood and, and the abuse I endured and just how that affected me, you know, kind of what we talked about earlier in the conversation, how that affected me, um, you know, emotionally and and how it, it skewed my visions of love and what I thought a relationship and a marriage were and how it made me codependent and and basically served me up on a silver platter to another abusive narcissist. Um, and then the sequel is actually, um, well, it's a sequel to Gasping for Air. So I don't want to give anything away because if somebody hasn't right. read gasping for air, then um, I don't want to give anything away. But it okay. let's just say it continues that story. So you'll get a little more of um, some situations with my ex, kind of see where that dies out. And then they're was a new villain that came oh. up, a narcissist that came. I just don't have a good detector on these people, <laughs> I think, because I had one that came out of nowhere that oh, I knew God. a long time and, and, boy, put me through the. I'm still actually presently going through the ringer with this person Mm -hmm. um so that is what the sequel is about it's fun stuff but boy people who have read gasping for air have been pressuring me so i keep telling (laughs) everyone it's like netflix yeah i am trying to get this next season out but y'all have to wait (laughs) all right Well, we'll definitely be anticipating the release and let everybody know where they can get gasping for air absolutely anywhere you can find books online And most of us go to Amazon for everything. So it's on Amazon, ebook um, or print book, but anywhere else that books are sold, you can find it. You can also um, click the link on the homepage of my website to buy it there as well. So, All right, well, Dana, I wanna thank you so much for joining me on
0: another episode of Vibe Selection. And so for any of you, you're welcome. And for any of you listeners that may be going through a, you know, abusive relationship or situation, um, I do want to give all of my listeners the National Domestic Violence Hotline number um, that you can reach out to and call if you're in that circumstance. And that number is 800-799-7233. Once again, that is 800-799-7233. Um, If you do want to connect with me on IG, you can do so at Vibe Selection Podcast. If you do want to get some Vibe Selection merch, whether it is a water bottle, a coffee mug, um, anything, you can do so at www.teespring.com slash Vibe Selection. Once again, I'm your host, Kyra. Tune in for next week's episode. Bye.
1: Thank you for joining Vibe Selection with Kyra. Come vibe out with us again next time and hear the latest on today's hot topics. Find us on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney or donate at www.patreon.com slash vibe selection.